Thank you, Jesse. So we're in chapter number 13 of the book of Exodus, and we're going to begin in verse number 17 in just a moment. I um, just am so excited to be able to, to share God's word with you this morning. When we think about everything that the uh, had occurred with the children of Israel and the plagues and everything, we would, we would think uh, from our own experience, well, let me just ask, how many have, have been a Christian for more than five years? Raise your hand if you've been a Christian for more than five years. Okay, all right. So one of the things that we tend to forget and we need to remember is that the Israelites had much to learn about the Lord. They, they had just been redeemed out of Egypt and had very little knowledge about the Lord and who he was. In fact, most likely, they knew far more about the pagan deities of Egypt and the pantheon of gods that they had than they did about the one true God of Israel, if you think about it. And so um, we, we must keep this in mind as we begin working our way through the ne- this week and next week as, as we move forward. But we also must keep that in mind that that is true of many who are converted to Christ in adulthood. They don't know much about the Lord, and they've got to learn about the Lord. And it's a long process, isn't it? I mean, y'all, some of you have been saved a very long time, and you're still learning, aren't you? Okay, good. I'm glad you're learning. So we're all learning. God's infinite. We, we can't uh, not learn about him. <coughs> the Israelites operated with the usual assumptions of most people trying to understand the workings of this good and powerful God. And they, they think this way. They thought this way. A good and powerful God would hardly allow his people to go through dangers and troubles and griefs and testings, would he? Would a good God do that? Well, the reasoning led them naturally to think, well, if God is all-powerful and he can suppress the Egyptians and their gods through plagues and spare us, his people, entirely, then we should expect that he's going to take care of our wants and our desires just as we define them, right? Isn't that a natural assumption? It is. We're, we're beginning a section of Exodus in the narrative where it takes the reader from Egypt to Sinai. This is this week and next week. It's a trip from Egypt to Sinai. And there, you're going to see various hardships that the Israelites experienced. God was at work in their lives, and he's, he's shaping them and educating them, and he's allowing them to learn what it meant to trust him in all sorts of situations. In addition, he's treating them uh, in a way that has always been difficult for people to accept. You know what that is? And it's true for us as it was true for them. God is not telling them everything they wanted to know. Isn't that hard to do? But listen, and this is, this is critical, this is so important that you get this. He is telling them everything they needed to know as his covenant people in order to A, receive salvation, and B, to worship him. And the same is still true today. They wanted to know much more. They wanted to know 
how to avoid problems and dangers and how to get out of unpleasant situations. Doesn't that sound like anybody you know? Did you see that person in the mirror today? You know, God gives us everything that we need to know about Him. It's in His Word. But we want to know a lot more. I mean, we ask all kinds of extremely important questions like, where, do, where should I work? Or what house should I buy? Or where should I invest my money? Or what is the best decision for my kid's school? And so on. And what God gives us instead is everything that we need to know to know who He is. The greatest question in all the world. Totally different. It's like God's on uh, page 28 and we're on page 29 or something like that, right? And He's trying to get us over on page 28. In our passage today, we're going to learn four important truths about the Lord. And these truths drive us to praise Him because there is none like the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that there is none like you. And every person here, even Bob, today in his testimony, said you took him through a detour that he was not expecting, he didn't want. But Lord, you have shown your faithfulness. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through the, the passage today, that you will drive our hearts to worship you, realizing that the twists and the turns and the ups and the downs and the trials and the testings and everything that we see, these are all designed, Lord, for us to be drawn to you and drawn to glorify you. And I just ask that our hearts, as the hymn that says, will be tuned to your praise in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the four lessons that we're going to see today, four truths about God that drives us to praise Him. And the first one is that the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. And because He is faithful, we can trust His wisdom. Look at verse number 17 of chapter number 13. 13, 17. Have your Bibles open. We're going to go lots of Scripture today. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of Philistines, although that way was near. For God said... Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. You know what? Does, it, does that make sense to anybody? Probably not. Let me show you what exactly is going on here. This is a satellite image of the area. Now, they're coming from somewhere right over in here. Can everybody see this? The land of Goshen, right? And uh, the quickest way is right here, the way to the land of the Philistines. And here's Philistia. That is, there's a name for that road. It's a major trade route. The Latin term is the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And this road, this major trade route, would continue on up into the Fertile Crescent. You guys remember that from high school, studying that geography, the Fertile Crescent? Went through Canaan. And God did not take them that way. That trip from Goshen to the land of Canaan would have taken them about two weeks. That's all it would have taken them. But they didn't go that way. Why did they not go that way? Because the Egyptians had garrisons all along the way. And then when you cross, there's a, there's a little river right here that once you cross it, then you're in the land of Philistia. And guess what they had? They had garrisons too. And in here, this, this road led them where, by Ashkelon and Ashdod and Gath. You ever heard of those names? The, the major Philistine garrisons and continue up. And then if they continued in the Canaan, they would have had to fight the Canaanites. 
And so um, they didn't go that way. It was a militarized zone. There was a strong military presence and so on. So knowing all this, God changed the course and led the Israelites the exact opposite way. The exact opposite way. He led them south, away from Canaan and into the wilderness. It was not the most obvious way, and it was not the shortest way. It was not the most direct way, but it was the right way because it was God's way. I'll, I'll go ahead and show you this. I love maps, by the way. And so people tell me I'm good at names. You don't know how I, I do this. If you tell me your name, I'm going to forget it in five seconds, okay? So what I do is I try to remember it long enough for me to write your name down. If I can see your name on paper, I remember it. And that's why I love maps, because once I see something on a map, I remember it. But look at what happened. They, they ended up going all the way. The Mount Sinai is somewhere way down here. Now, this is the Gulf of Suez. This is the Gulf of Aqaba. And this is the Red Sea proper down here. And, of course, this, you can see even on this satellite image, the Suez Canal right here. God took them all the way down here. They wandered around the wilderness. By the way, this is Kadesh Barnea where they were told, look, you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't believe God. They kept coming back and down. They even came back to Sinai. They eventually came to uh, Ezion Gezer, which is now Eliot in uh, northern, modern Israel. And they went up this way. Now, there's two roads, one here, but they couldn't go on this road. This road is called the King's Highway. They ended up having to go further on out this way on another road, and I can't remember the name of it. And that's how they went into the Promised Land. I just gave you 40 years of history, okay? But they could have gone this way. I'm sorry, this wasn't in my notes, but I love maps. So hopefully this will help you out just a little bit. That was God's way. God knew what his people could handle. And he knew that they needed to take the long way home. And God knows that you and I need to take the long way home too. Doesn't he? We wonder why the Lord doesn't make things easier, don't we? we? It would seem that if he would just answer our prayer and take care of our immediate needs, that would free us up to worship him more. Isn't that the way we think? Is that reality, though? Now, the Bible is very clear. That's not reality. The only time we worship God, really, is when things are hard. And we're coming out of hard things. And God knows that. And so we can trust God. He's faithful. We can trust His wisdom. We can trust God because the Lord is faithful. We can trust His promises. Look at verse number 19 with me. Verse number 19. Uh, Verse number 19 says, they took whose bones with them? Joseph. Now, Joseph was mummified, and he was in an Egyptian coffin, so most likely his body was very well preserved. But he took Joseph's bones with him, and that's to fulfill the last wish of Joseph. In Genesis chapter number 50, he told them, you will go back in the land of Canaan, take my bones with me. Hebrews 11.22 talks about that, and it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This simple act, verse number 19, shows us that God is faithful in keeping his promises. Wonderful to know? Because the Lord is faithful, 
he's also present to guide his people. Look at verse number 20. Not only does he know which way is best, but he also goes along to make sure that his people get there. Listen to his guidance in verse number 20. And they moved on from Sukkoth and camped in Atham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Did, did anybody catch that? He gave them headlights. Right? They can travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and it did not depart from before the people. The word before, by the way, most of the time means in front, um, and uh, it's a very fascinating term, before the people, but we won't go into it. I will say this. This is what we call a theophany. You ever heard the term theophany? Theologians call that. That's, a, that's an appearance of God, Old Testament appearance of God, and God was in the fiery cloud of glory. As an, the, that fiery cloud was an outward display of the glory of God, the inward glory of God. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 63 with me. Isaiah chapter 63. Because the question then is, what person of the Trinity is in that cloud? Now, we learned earlier on that uh, Moses spoke to Jesus Christ in the burning bush incident, right? Remember that? That was Jesus Christ. Who was this? Well, in Isaiah 63, verse number 9, Isaiah says this, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Now, here we go. He was afflicted. Who's he? Let's keep reading. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But, verse number 10, they rebelled, and look what they grieved. They grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy. Now, let me stop. Remember how Ephesians says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit? You want to, well, you want to know what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit? Isaiah just defined it, didn't he? Resist the Holy Spirit and you grieve him. Okay? Uh, Therefore he turned to be their enemy and uh, himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? There's God is the shepherd, the shepherd image of, of God. Where is he who put in the midst of them his what? His Holy Spirit, there's the answer to the question, who was in that pillar? It was the Holy Spirit who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. So it's the Holy Spirit, right? Who led them through the depths, question, like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble like the livestock that goes down into the valley, The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Now, what is the Holy Spirit's job we learn from Jesus? The Holy Spirit's job is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's one of his responsibilities. Here we see the Holy Spirit leading them through. Now, I can't remember, I don't think I put this in my Friday email, but I was thinking about this yesterday. I'm going to give this totally free. Not in my sermon notes, 
but it's a meditation I, I was thinking about. Many of you may know that Matthew presents Jesus as the perfect Israel. Israel was a complete failure in the Old Testament, wasn't it? They failed completely. Jesus didn't. The first four chapters of Matthew presents the phases of Jesus' life that exactly mirrors Israel. Think about it. They were in Canaan, and Joseph uh, went down before them, and eventually all of Israel went to Egypt. So chapter 1, Jesus' birth in Canaan. Chapter number 2, Jesus goes to Egypt. Chapter number 3, Moses leads them through the, the, um, the Red Sea into the wilderness. Chapter 3 of Matthew, Jesus is baptized. Chapter number 4, he goes into the wilderness. Who leads him into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit. You see the parallels there? Fascinating, isn't it? That is so fascinating to me. Some of you might be bored, I'm sorry, but that is just it's, it's awesome to think about. All right. The cloud that led them is the Holy Spirit. Now, don't you wish that God would give us the same kind of guidance today? If only a bright cloud would direct me to the college I need to attend. If only a bright cloud would just sit over the house I need to buy. Who I'm going to marry. Wouldn't that be great? be kind of weird <laughs> yet the truth is that God gives all of us the divine guidance we need in a much better form he has given us the fire of his spirit and now we have his glorious presence with us day and night no wonderful Christ calls him another comforter number two Number two truth is that the Lord is passionate for his glory. In chapter 14, verses 1 to 9, we see that the Lord tells them to turn back. So they're, they're headed out. You saw the map. They're headed out. And then the Lord says, no, I want you to turn back. Why do I want you to turn back? Because that is going to entice Pharaoh to say, those people don't know what they're doing. And he's going to send his army out. And I want them to do this, and look at verse number 4, chapter 14. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And all the Egyptians shall know that I am God. This is the central theme of Exodus. The central theme of Exodus is God wants the world to know that he is the Lord. And he gets the glory, and he will glory. And in the end, God gets all the glory. And that's the theme of Exodus. God is passionate about his glory. That's why Paul can give the difficult teaching of Romans chapter number 11. Why are there so few Jewish people being saved at this time? Eventually, there's going to be a great revival. But at this time, why is it? He teaches some very difficult truths. In Romans chapter 11, then he finally says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And so all the difficult truths that we learn in the Bible, are they're there for the glory of God. 
And if we don't see how it glorifies God, it's because we, don't, we haven't spent enough thinking time thinking about how it does glorify God. Because he says it does. Eventually, God's patience will run out, and it ran out with Pharaoh. And his patience will turn to wrath, just like it did with Pharaoh. Heed God's word and turn to Jesus is the message for us today. There are two ways that God can get glorified in someone's life. You know what they are? He can be glorified by giving them mercy, or he can be glorified by judging them. Two ways. Do you know, I, well, I used to pray when I was younger for people's salvation. I'd say, Lord, please glorify yourself in their life. And I realized that that's a deficient way to pray because God is going to glorify himself in their life. And so I started praying, Lord, please glorify yourself by saving this person, not by judging this person. Because God will get the glory through salvation or through uh, judgment. Lesson number three of the four lessons is the Lord saves sinners. Isn't that wonderful? Now we're down to chapter 14, verse number 10. Now we're to one of the most important stories in the Bible, the crossing of the Red Sea. God is going to get his people out of Egypt through the miracle of the sea, and he's going to judge the Egyptians by swallowing them up in the sea. But first, I want to give you a textual note. Look at chapter 14, verse number 6. I want to, uh, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but it will help your understanding of, of, of some things. Verse number 6 says this. This is talking about Pharaoh. He says, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. Now, every modern translation but one uses the word army for the Hebrew word there. But the word there, translated army, is actually the word people. It can sometimes be translated kin, his kinfolk. Pharaoh's taking his people with him. He, he wasn't at this point taking his army. He was grabbing his advisors, his closest advisors, and taking them with him. Now, this is important to understand because apparently Pharaoh himself did not actually go as far as the Red Sea. He turned back probably with his advisors and officers after the divine cloud uh, prevented him and his army from attacking the Israelites at Pi Hiroth. The army made the attack on their own, something you may not have known about this incident here. Now look at verse number 7. Verse number 7, And took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Chariots, they were the pinnacle of ancient weaponry. They were fearsome. So when the Israelites saw hundreds, potentially thousands of chariots, they were afraid. Look at verse number 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel did what? They cried out to the Lord. Isn't that where we're supposed to cry? We are. We're to cry out from the Lord, and He hears us in our troubles. And God was with them. And so He instructed Moses. Look at what He said, verse number 16. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they may go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts when his, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. He said, I'm going to get glory out of them and the Egyptians are going to know it. What was his very first move? What was the first move that he made to get glory over the Egyptians? Very first move is the next verse, verse number 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. And coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. How many understand that completely? It's kind of difficult to understand, isn't it? Let me see if I can describe it as best I can. The pillar moved from before the Israelites to between them and the Egyptian army. The angel of the Lord was in the pillar. Okay? The, that's a messenger. So most likely it was the Holy Spirit we've learned. And at night, on the Egyptian side, it was pitch black darkness. But on the Israelite side, it was light. Fascinating, isn't it? That's what the Bible says happened. Now, these verses are notoriously hard to understand, but the Egyptians had the darkness, the Israelites had the light. Of course, we all know that then Moses uh, put a staff out over the, the Red Sea, and the Bible says that a strong east wind blew all night. Now, critics, skeptics say, that the crossing was actually a marshy, marshy area north of the Gulf of Suez. It was a marshy area. And um, so a strong wind came, just kind of moved the water out of the way, and they were able to cross the marshes. But look at verse number 22. I want to point out something in verse number 22. And the people of Israel <coughs> went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters became a wall to them, on their right and on their left. You see that word wall. That word wall is not talking about a wall. That word wall is talking about the walls of a city. The waters became as tall as city, fortified city walls on either side of them. It was not a marsh. It was, it was some deep part of the, uh, the gulf there. Now, if you know the satellite imagery, there are lakes between... Um, the Gulf of Suez and the Mediterranean Sea, and it could have been in one of those lake areas. We don't know, or it actually could have been the, the Gulf of Suez. We don't know, but we know the Bible is true, every word of it, right? And it became a wall. It was a deep part somewhere. It is clear from the descriptions that the sea through which the Israelites went walked was deep water. It wasn't something shallow. It was a city wall-sized wall of water on either side of them, implies the division of a deep body of water, not merely the drying out of some shallow marsh and Pharaoh's army drowned in six inches of water. It didn't happen that way, okay? Even the term, see the term sea there? That, that word is, is yam, and it means a big body of water. It implies depth of water. It's never used for a swamp or a mudflat. It's used to describe large bodies of water. And the Bible says that the Israelites crossed on dry ground and the Egyptians followed them into a watery trap. Look at 
Um, you see the narrative there. And God planned this. God planned for them to go through on dry ground. He planned for it to become a trap for the Egyptians. He executed the entire uh, exodus. Isaiah says this. Look at this with me. Isaiah 51, verse number 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way, notice for who to pass, the redeemed, the redeemed. Now that's important. I'm going to get to this in just a minute. The redeemed passed through the sea. Then God then let the Egyptians know that he was getting glory over them. How did he let them know? How did he let them know he's getting glory over them? Verse number 25 tells us that he clogged up the chariot wheels. They begin to bog down. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights uh, against, for them against the Egyptians. And then it seems that he threw them into violent panic. And I want you to see this in another part of Scripture. Turn to Psalm 77 with me. Psalm 77. Because it seems that he did something else. You know these narratives, they don't describe everything that went on. But as you look through Scripture, you can put more and more things together. Psalm 77, verse number 17. This is talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. And the psalmist says, The clouds poured out water, and the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. And so God not only uh, clogged their chariot wheels, he threw them into a panic by causing a storm over the area. Now, what happens to people when they panic? They, they, they lose sense of what to do, don't they? And they lost their sense of what to do. He caused a panic on the Egyptians. And by the time the Egyptians said, let's get out of here, it was too late. Moses stretched out his hands, and the water swallowed the Egyptian army. And the Bible says, not one of them remained. Not one. Chapter 14 ends, Jesse read the verses, let's look at verse number 30. Chapter 14 ends, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That's the way it should be, shouldn't it? See the acts of the Lord, we fear the Lord, and we worship Him. As Christians, we have experienced an even greater escape, haven't we? The greatest escape of all, we have been saved from our bondage to sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, we see the order of salvation in which God takes the initiative, right? It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. God's saving work comes first, and then we are called to respond in faith. The New Testament describes Christ's saving work in terms of the Exodus. Did you know that? The Exodus. But the most significant connection 
is one that the Apostle Paul made when he wrote. And just look at it on the screen with me in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And what? What does he say? All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Do not miss this. Paul is making a definitive connection between the exodus and baptism. See the connection there? For the Israelites, the crossing of the Red Sea is like baptism. They passed through the waters of death and did not die. Does it make sense? The Red Sea was a type of baptism, and thus it was a forecast of our final deliverance in Christ. Once we were enslaved in the Egypt of sin, but now Christ has set us free. And all of this is symbolized in the Red Sea event of baptism. It's symbolized by our baptism. We are buried with Christ in death and raised to walk in the newness of life. We went through the waters of judgment with Jesus Christ. Now, it's really popular at this point in a lot of messages for preachers to invite their congregation to identify their own Red Sea experiences and trust God to get them through the Red Sea experiences. And this completely misses the point of this wondrous event. This is not a story about getting help when we're in trouble. It is not that at all. Rather, it is meant to teach us about the coming to God for our salvation. The only Red Sea experience that matters is the one that Jesus experienced when he passed through the walls of death and came out victorious on the other side. That's the Red Sea experience that counts. We had our Exodus experience at Calvary and in the garden tomb. Because when Jesus died and rose again, he did it for us. And when, if we are in Christ, we pass through the waters of death in him. And we come out victorious in him. We were included in these savings events when we were baptized into him. And now we're safe on the other side. And all that remains for us to do is what the Israelites did. Fear God and trust him as we go forward. Fear God and trust him. Fear God and trust Him. That's what we're called to do. Have you ever thought about this? The Israelites were not saved because of their goodness, but because of God's mercy. <clears throat> Why did the Israelites not drown in the Red Sea? You know why that was? They had a mediator. Didn't they? A man in the middle. His name was Moses. Right? Moses spoke to God. He spoke for the people to God. And he, he was with the people and spoke to the people for God. He was the man in the middle. He identified with God. And he identified with the Israelites. And because God's power was working through him, he was the mediator. He is that man in the middle. But there is another mediator, a greater mediator. 
He was not just rebuked for one sin. This mediator took God's wrath for all of our sin. Do you want to cross over, dear dear person? Do you want to cross over? Do you want to be with God for all of eternity? Then Jesus is the only way we cross over. He is our mediator. We are baptized into him. Come to Jesus. And don't rely upon your goodness. Don't rely upon what you can give. You can't give enough. Turn to Jesus in faith and believe. Well, let's go to chapter number 15. The fourth truth is that the Lord is worthy of our song. The Lord is worthy of our song. Did you know, trivia, you can, you can use this sometime if you want. This will make everybody think that you're really brilliant. This is the first song in the Bible. Did you know that? This is the first song in the Bible, so you can use that now. Whenever God does something great, He deserves to be praised, doesn't He? Did you know that the Bible says that there was singing at creation? The Bible says that when God made the world, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. That's in Job chapter 38, verse number 7. Think about all the songs in the Bible. There there are tons of songs. I'm just going to mention a couple. When God sent his son into the world, the Bible says that all the angels sang for joy. Right? Who else sang for joy in that time? Mary? Zechariah? Simeon, there were others that joined it. The Bible says, tells us, the church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And all of these songs and many others in scriptures come, listen, they always come after God does something great. Or, or, reveal something about himself when god reveals himself to somebody a new truth there is a song and i am convinced i am convinced that the singing in the church would be so much more enhanced if believers were communing with god all week statistics say that only 10 percent of you read your bible during the week that's what statistics say. I, don't, I would like to think that my church is above 10, or at least 11, maybe more. But that's what statistics say. I've always wanted to try this experiment <clears throat> ever since I've been a pastor. I would love one day to delay the congregational singing until after the sermon. Because I've noted that the singing after a sermon is much greater than the singing before the sermon. Why is that? Because you've been meditating on the greatness of God and communing with God. Would you agree with me? That's so true. But you know the problem with the modern church. The modern church and the modern church gurus put all the burden on this guy that leads the singing. You got a big job, I mean. <laughs> and not only is it not fair, it's unbiblical to put all the responsibility on this guy. 
In reality, the burden is on the congregants. Do you want to worship? Do you want the worship to be better on Sunday morning at Providence Bible Church? If you do, worship God all week. Do you want the worship to be better here? Do you want your heart to swell in praise to God on Sunday mornings? Then know God during the week. And when your heart is full and you walk on in here on Sunday morning, Mike here to get up here and lead the singing with a two-string banjo. And you'll think it's the greatest worship service ever. Because it's worship comes from the heart. It's not manufactured from the outside by some cool hip music director with some great songs and a, a, a chorus of great vocalists up here. That doesn't drive worship. Worship is driven by the revelation and the glory of God. Now let's look at the song. It's so rich, I don't have time to do much with it. Real quick, let's just run through a little bits and pieces of this. Verses 1 to 3, chapter 15. Then Moses and all the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Can we sing to the Lord because he's triumphed gloriously? Yes. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. The horse and the rider, symbolic of Satan. I told you this, Pharaoh is a type of Satan in the Old Testament. He's thrown Satan into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And then look at these words. This is my God. Can you say that about your Lord? He is your salvation. This is my God. This isn't the God of my parents. This isn't the God of my neighbors. This is my God. He's the God of my salvation. And because of that, I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Hallelujah that He's a man of war. Hallelujah that He, he the lat. well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Let me just stop and move on to the, the song itself. It's impossible to outline this song. I just want to highlight some parts. We can praise Him for His eternity. Right off the bat, he uses his covenant name, the Lord, Yahweh. He highlights, I am that I am. Number two, we can praise him for his power. Look at verse number six. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Isaiah says that all the armies of the world are but dust. The most fearsome of the armies. We can praise him for his wrath. Look at verse number six, second half of verse number six. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Oh, wait. We live in the West. <clears throat> You're not supposed to glorify God's wrath. That's something uncomfortable. Isn't that the way the West thinks? We need to get up and make sure that we always present God as nice things about Him. God loves everyone. No, He doesn't. I know God so loved the world and all that. God loves his glory. And God wars against sin. It doesn't seem right in the West to praise him for his wrath. But why should we? We should because God is so holy. Listen to this. This is important. We praise God for his wrath because he's so holy. 
that it would not be right for him to tolerate sin. And he, he should be praised for the justice of his wrath. And so verse 3 says that God is a warrior. We praise God for his wrath because it's not right to tolerate sin. We can praise him for his supremacy. The eternal, just, all-powerful God is superior not only to his enemies, but to their gods. He's superior to all the gods. Moses, look at verse number 11. Moses asks, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? You're majestic in holiness. You're awesome in your glorious deeds, doing wonders. Who is like you, O Lord? The answer? No one. There is none like you. We praise Him for His love. Verse number 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have... You have uh, guided them by your strength and by your holy abode. I'm going to say something that's going to be a little bit controversial, but it's true. God does love people. He loves people as his image bearers, but that's not the same love as he has for his redeemed. It's a different kind of love. And he loves his redeemed. And he guides his redeemed. And with his strength, he guides us to his holy abode. What is that? For us, that's heaven. That's his presence. We are guided into his presence by steadfast love. Moses meant God's covenant-keeping love, his absolute loyalty to his people, his faithfulness to his promise. God had proved his love to Israel over and over and over. And everything that has happened to this point in the book of Exodus was motivated by God's love. Had he kept all of his um, love promises to Israel? The answer is yes. In particular, he kept his promise to redeem them. He promised that he would redeem them to buy them back from slavery. It's a steadfast, it's a perfect love. My, there's a, there's a hymn. Are you familiar with the hymn? The deep, deep love of Jesus. His love is so deep. And your sin and my sin is so deep. I am so thankful for the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And we can praise Him. I could go on. Let me just give you one more. We can praise Him for our promised land. Now this is fascinating. Look at verse number 14. Moses looks to the future, confidently anticipating the days when God would lead His people to conquest. He traced the route that they would follow to Canaan, and one by one all their enemies would be defeated. Verse number 14. The peoples have heard... They have trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And isn't that what Ruth said? Or not Ruth, I'm sorry. Rahab the harlot. You know what she said when they came Joshua, uh, in the book of Joshua. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. There still is a stone. This is a prophecy of victory, the fulfillment of which was documented in the book of Joshua. Moses was not describing random acts of violence, but righteous acts of divine judgment that God would execute because of his great love for his people. Look at the next verse, verse number 16, the second half. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Did you catch that word purchased? You uh, will bring them in 
You will plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God does not keep his love to himself, but he shares it with his people. And one day, one day, he will plant us in a heavenly abode eternally with his presence. And he does it because of his steadfast love. And in the process, he's going to judge all the sin that was in the world, and sin will be no more. My mind, when I was writing this, uh, I was in, uh, literally, I, I was tearing up, choking up, thinking about the wondrous love of God and all that we can praise Him for. And my mind ran forward to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 6, or 26, I'm sorry. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Moses is, is uh, talking about all the enemies to be destroyed, and the Bible tells us the last enemy is death. And so then Paul finishes up by saying this, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, you want victory over death? You want death not to ever touch you? Then be in Jesus Christ. Trust Him. He's your mediator. You Be baptized into Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. And sin and death will no longer be able to touch you. Isn't that a wonderful truth? <clears throat> but before we get there, but before we get there, we take that long detour route and we're wondering, Lord, why are you sending us this way? Wouldn't it be so much easier if? Wouldn't this? Wouldn't that? And what God wants us to do are two things. Fear Him and trust Him. Fear Him and trust Him. Because the path that God has laid out for you, Bob talked about, the hard part of the path is the perfect path for you and for God's glory. Are you trusting God today? Are you fearing God today? Are you glorifying God today? He deserves all of our glory, doesn't he? Lord, I thank you so much for the glory that you displayed in the Red Sea crossing, how that you took your redeemed through the waters of judgment and they were saved. And Lord, I thank you that Christ again took on death on the cross and in that garden tomb so that he can bring his redeemed into the glories of heaven where after seeing everything that God has done, we will praise you for all of eternity and we'll do it with perfect minds and perfect hearts and singleness of hearts. Lord, I ask that we will gaze at your power and your glory and sing wonderful praises to you in your name. Amen.